We're in Ezekiel, as Gino let you know. We're in chapter 12, and we're in verse 17. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open there. If not, you can follow along, I think, right? Yeah. Nothing cheap about us. <laughs> we'll have the verses up there for you. Uh, Ezekiel 12, 17 through 28. We used to, I don't know why we always used to say that in my family. Yeah, There's nothing cheap about us. It, it never made sense. Do you have sayings in your family that don't make any sense at all, that, that you just say them? I don't want to know any of them, but I just... <laughs> Waiting for Goudot is a play by Samuel Beckett. It's considered one of the most prominent works in the theater of the absurd and has been called, and I quote, the most significant English language play of the 20th century. Anybody familiar with Beckett, Waiting for Goudot? The play portrays two days in the lives of a pair of men, Vladimir and Estragon. They divert themselves while they wait expectantly for someone named Goudot to arrive. By the way, there's different pronunciations uh, of Goudot. I've always said Goudot, but Kelly's laughing at me, so it must be something different. <laughs> it's all that college stuff. I, w I went to college once. Back, back in the day when they really, you know, had to drive, you know, against traffic both ways on the freeway to get there. But anyway, uh, they're waiting for this guy, maybe his name is Goudot, to arrive. <laughs> spelled, <laughs> it's spelled G-O-D-O-T. Hey, I studied existential philosophy and we pronounced it Goudot. I'm sorry. My life is the theater of the absurd. They claim him as an acquaintance, but in fact they hardly know him, admitting that they would not recognize him were they to see him. To occupy themselves, they do amazing things like eat and sleep and converse and argue and sing and play games. They exercise, swap hats, and they contemplate suicide. You're going to want to rush out and see this. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. Though they look expectantly for him, this guy never arrives. Now, the play includes the story of the two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. God is described in the play as having a white beard, and Goudot is also said to have a white beard. One interpreter, therefore, concludes Goudot is God. He has cast humanity aside, and though he promises to come back each day, he fails in his promises and the unjust world goes on. Ezekiel was quite the actor there on the banks of the river Kebar in Babylon. He had just finished a one-man, one-day engagement during which he dug a hole through the wall of his house and portrayed a man trying to escape for his life during a violent siege by an invading army. In our verses, he began a longer acting engagement in which he would portray a man and really a population struggling to survive the aftermath of a city's siege and destruction. His audience, however, would remain unmoved. They would have loved a performance of waiting for Goudot because they thought that God would never arrive. Some would say, the days are prolonged and every vision fails. While others would say, the vision is for many days from now, and the prophecies of time far off. Those are two of the comments we'll see in just a minute. They were mistaken on both counts. It would not be long at all before the day of the siege would be upon Jerusalem 
and the prophecies fulfilled. And so the exiles there in Babylon, already in Babylon, they had hope uh, that a false hope that Jerusalem would stand, that Babylon would withdraw, that there wouldn't be a destruction of either the temple or the city. Uh, and they were sadly mistaken. Verse 17, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink your water with trembling and anxiety. In his previous play, Ezekiel, as I said, had squeezed through the hole in his wall with a few meager supplies. Bread and water represented then what they represent now. Basic, very scarce resources. Ezekiel had to portray a man reduced to bread and water who was quaking and trembling with anxiety. I don't know about you, but I have absolutely no acting ability. Zero. Like you, I probably think that I can act, you know. You look at these guys and... You know, you think, oh, how hard could that be? And then you see yourself on some crazy handheld video and you think, wow, I hope that doesn't make it to YouTube. Do you realize everything you do now can be, it's, you're, you're all on YouTube, you just don't know it yet. You haven't, no one sent you the link yet. It's crazy. And so, but I have a real respect for people who can really act. I have no idea how to portray anxiety to an audience. You know, some of these guys... You know, these famous actors, you can say, if you were in an actor's studio and you could say, hey, portray anxiety for us. And they could do that. And you would think, wow, that, that's anxiety. I can't, I'm, I was going to try for you, but I don't even know what I would do. It would be the same look every time. <laughs> you know, I don't know, you know. But, you know, there are people who can just, you know, uh, uh, just, I don't know how many of you saw... Um, yeah, I can talk about this. Tom Hanks in Castaway. Remember Castaway, that movie? If you saw it, great plane crash, man. What an amazing play. I would love, if you're going to crash in a plane, let it be like that. But uh, anyway, uh, there was a big thing about the movie for a while because I forget for how long he was on screen by himself without saying anything, just portraying a guy that was shipwrecked and he lost, you know, 700 pounds or something like that. I mean, he was really into it and stuff, you know. I mean, and he, he had me convinced that he was shipwrecked on that island and he could portray those kinds of things. So I don't know how you do anxiety or the subtle difference between quaking and trembling. Show me quaking. Okay, now tremble. You know, it's, it's interesting. So Ezekiel, I think, is quite the actor. Uh, he's able by in the in the you know Holy Spirit to portray these things, these kind of silent dramas, as it were. Now we can't be sure how many performances there were daily or how long this play ran, but we can be sure that the prophet went out as often as the Lord prompted him. He ate and drank while anxious and shaking. Uh, you know, some people um, some people are called to uh, what you might call a monotony. Uh, their life just, you know, it just kind of cycles. You do similar things day in and day out. Others seem to have a, you know, a more exciting life. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there's always something different going on. But all that really matters is that you're faithful to God's call in your life. And so, you know, Ezekiel had this one act where he busted through his wall. And then that was, that. you can only do that once. 
you know, because then your wall has a big hole in it. <clears throat> and uh, But then every day for however many days, we saw his previous engagements for like a year he was doing, you know, some crazy stuff. And so now he's in this run where he just, his whole thing involves eating bread, drinking water, quaking, trembling, and showing the face of anxiety uh, to an audience that we'll see really didn't get what uh, he was getting at. Now, the interpretation of the play seems obvious. Verse 19, Say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel, They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with dread, so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it because of the violence of all those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste and the land shall become desolate and you shall know that I am the Lord. So think of this part as sort of a narration during or at the end of the portrayal of this uh, scene. The people were looking at the inhabitants of Jerusalem when they were looking at Ezekiel, those who would be displaced when Jerusalem fell. I think uh, if my math is right, which it usually is not, Ezekiel was... Uh, began his ministry in the fifth year of his captivity in Babylon and Jerusalem would fall in the twelfth year. And so there was a period there of several years when the people were holding on to this hope uh, and um, he was portraying these things and they, as we'll see, ridiculed him. And so, as I said, the exiles in Babylon, they didn't buy into the prophecies of Jerusalem's demise. They offered one of two main arguments and the first is in verse 21 and 22 says the word of the Lord came to me saying son of man what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel which says the days are prolonged and every vision fails now God calls this a proverb it was a false saying that had made its way into the popular language and culture and it was now the customary response to the preaching of the truth by the prophets in Ezekiel's case in Babylon, up in uh, Jerusalem, Jeremiah was still prophesying. And uh, this was what they were saying. So one of the things they were saying is that the days are prolonged and every vision or the word of the prophets uh, has failed. On a lesser scale, there are modern proverbs that folks throw out as excuses. I'm kind of excited about the series that Jacob's going to start on Sunday nights, uh, which will deal with kind of these type of things, questions skeptics, uh, skeptics ask or throw out their <coughs> arguments that they have about why God doesn't exist and that. And, and this, the kind that we have today, for one, one that you hear a lot really, there are too many hypocrites in the church. Oh, well, I wish I had known that, you know, before I gave my life to Jesus Christ and was saved for eternity and on my way to heaven because, boy, if I had known that, I would have... I would have gone for hell all along. Of course there are lots of hypocrites in the church. I mean, what? that's crazy. Uh, then there's this one. There are too many contradictions in the Bible. The standard response to that is, oh yeah, like what? Well, I don't know. There's, just, there's too many of them to even know how many of them there are. Well, just, just give me one. Let's, let's get into one. Oh, I'll have to look it up. Have you ever even read the Bible? No. Oh. Okay, most people who say that, because it's a proverb, it's, it's, you know, well, there's a lot of hypocrites, a lot of hypocrites in the church. I know a guy, my neighbor, you know, he said he was a Christian and then this happened and that happened. And a lot of times we get shaken by those things. Sometimes those things aren't even true or they're not the whole truth. 
Uh, the Bible one is a pretty common one, right? You know, there's always a lot of contradictions in the Bible. Well, we know that the Bible was written by, you know, man or that kind of a thing. I think the, the most popular, whether people actually say it this way or not, is, it's the one I think that's most believed, and that is that all roads lead to God. That, that is probably the most popular uh, thought that the average person has if you really pin them down. All roads lead to God. And you know, I think you can startle people sometimes by saying that you agree with that. Because it's true. All roads do lead to God. It's just that there's a narrow path that leads to eternal life. And then there's a broader path that leads to God in the great white throne judgment. So everybody will stand before God. They'll get there. But there's only one way that leads to eternal life. Uh, and so there are all these kinds of excuses that people throw out, modern day Proverbs. That's what they were doing in Ezekiel's time. They're saying, well, you know, the, the prophecies have failed. There's nothing really happening. Uh, we don't see the kind of destruction that you're talking about. And so their reasoning in the 6th century was that since God's judgment was delayed, then it wasn't coming at all. Now, the Apostle Peter dealt with this same reasoning in the 1st century, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, we read this. Peter said, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, Where's the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, Peter, he goes on in his letter to point out that things haven't continued without God's intervention. He cites the global flood of Noah's day as historical proof that God does indeed intervene in human history to bring judgment. And he could have cited Sodom and Gomorrah, some other historic judgments as well. When people fall back on this reasoning, there's something they have lost sight of. And that is the long-suffering of God. God waits to bring the judgment He has pronounced because He is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. To scoff at his supposed delay is to overlook the fact that if you're a non-believer, it is you that God is waiting for. People love to blame things on God. Take the recent disaster in Haiti, for example. Christians and non-Christians uh, have taken to... Uh, Either, well, non-Christians blaming God, some Christians giving God credit for it, uh, you know, as if he delights in those kinds of things. When Ezekiel himself said he, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Uh, and so God, you know, he's, he's, he called on the carpet for these things. Well, God has done something. He has sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross as substitute and savior for a rebellious, lost human race. He's acting in history for Jesus to return. And in his second coming, he'll set up a kingdom on earth during which there will be no such disasters. Uh, the earth will be restored and renewed and those kinds of things won't be happening anymore. In the meantime, he waits while the gospel is preached so that those who are still lost might have opportunity to repent, to believe and to be saved prior to the great and terrible tribulation that immediately precedes the kingdom on earth. So in a very real way, it is human beings, unrepentant human beings, who are more responsible for disasters than anyone else. Because the longer God waits, the longer His long-suffering waits, 
the more sin has its way and has its reign on this planet. But what he's waiting for is a good thing. He's waiting for hearts to be softened and uh, given to him so that people don't just perish physically in some disaster, but that they don't perish eternally in hell. God's long-suffering waits, but it will not wait indefinitely. He acted in the flood. He acted at Sodom and Gomorrah. He's acted in many other situations, probably in other history that we don't really have uh, privileged knowledge to. He's acted in judgment and he will act again. So verse 23, tell them therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision for no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel for I am the Lord. I speak and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed for in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. Now the Lord mentions false vision and flattering divination among his people. They had his word, they heard his prophets, they preferred that which was either false or flattering. That which is false ought to be easy enough to detect. Often, but not always, a believer embraces that which is false because they are not familiar enough with what is true. Uh, and so, you know, obviously, if you're not, if you don't know what something is genuine, uh, then you're more susceptible to that which is false. And uh, it's an encouragement for us to study that which is genuine, the Word of God itself, so that we will more easily recognize that which is false. Uh, just a mild exhortation. Uh, there are a lot of good Christian books out there. Uh, the best ones are written by people who are dead and have stood the test of time. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's no substitute for just reading your Bible uh, and becoming familiar with it in the sense that you're ready for the, you know, falsehoods when they come. And you just, you know, if there's something in there, if there's a, what we used to call a check in your spirit where you think, man, that just doesn't sound completely right, uh, then maybe it's not. I'm not saying it's not, but, uh, you know, we need to be a little bit more like the Bereans in the book of Acts who listened to the great apostle Paul. Wow. I mean, could that guy preach or what? Man, that guy could really put a message together. He you know, wrote most of the uh, you know, great doctrine of the New Testament. I was going to say wrote most of the New Testament, but then Jake would have stormed here and said, no, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. But anyway, uh, I've got to stay sharp with these young guys. It keeps my mind, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, they, they listen to Paul and they say, hey, we need to, we need to check that out. We, it sounds biblical, but we're not sure if it is. And so we need to check into that. Now, another reason we go for the false is that we're hesitant to seem skeptical or critical. Everyone seems to be getting blessed by some new idea or teaching. But in your spirit, again, you might feel checked as if it's not quite right. It's hard to go against the flow, but you must. It's hard to be that person. You're, maybe you hear something and everybody's kind of giving their assent to it and you, th and, and you think, oh, Lord, why? not me, please, not me. Okay, it's me. And then you start asking some questions. Well, what about this? And what about that? And, and, then, and everybody's just, you know, people are mad at you. Can't you just let it go? What's the matter with you? You're so critical. You're, you're so judgmental. 
And, and I'd like to think of it as just healthy skepticism. Uh, just being a Berean. You know, sometimes you have to step up and, hey, if something's true, I don't mind people asking me questions. I've been corrected sometimes. Twice that I know of. No, I'm just kidding. No, there's lots of correction. I mean, if, you know, people come up, hey, what, did you mean to say that? And sometimes, oh no, did I say that? And I thought I said something weird because everybody went, you know, and, and uh, you don't know what you're saying half the time, you know? And, and so you, you, you shouldn't, gosh, people come to me sometimes and, they, and they, they, they're like, they're doing trembling and quaking and anxiety, you know? I say, hey, what's the problem? Oh man, I went to this, I was in a situation one time where this Bible study leader, this pastor, and asked him a question, and the next thing you know, he was just all over me, yelling at me, or, you know, making me feel stupid, or whatever and stuff, and what a horrible thing. You know, I mean, just, you know, if you can't answer any questions, you don't know anything. Uh, so, yeah, ask the questions. Yeah, this is what I said, this is what I meant to say. Boy, if, I, if you heard that, that, man, that's not what I meant to say at all. Let's look at that together. Uh, but we need to be generally, not, not in a weird way, not just to be weird. I mean, there are some of us who are just weird. You know, you, you, just, you want to get a rise out of a person. You want to get their, their blood. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just, hey, you know, let's, let's really talk about this. You just made a statement. I want to talk about it. I want to know what you really mean about that. Do you really mean that? Because have you thought about this? Over here. And, and we shouldn't be afraid of that kind of thing. It'll keep us from that which is false. Uh, my good friend Dennis Davenport, who's on our board here uh, at, at the church, he pastors a, a large Calvary chapel down in the high desert in Victorville. Great, great guy. Just love Dennis to death. Uh, but he has a technique. It took me a while to, to figure out what he was all about. You have an idea? You want to do something? He is all over you with questions and, you know, have you thought of this and stuff. And, and uh, you know, the thing is, a couple of things. If you can't answer those questions and you're not ready for, the, for what it is that you think you're trying to do. And secondly, if you're willing to back down, then maybe you're not being led by the Lord. And in the end, if you can stand that kind of test, because worse tests are coming, <laughs> you know, from uh, spiritual forces... If then it's like, okay, I'm 100% behind you. Let's go. Let's do it. I'll help you. But there's nothing wrong with that kind of healthy exchange. Uh, and I think a lot of people would avoid uh, a lot of pitfalls in their personal Christian life and in the life of the church if we all did a lot more of that. Hey, do you really think you're ready for that? How about this? What about your family? And I don't see this happening. You want to start a ministry? Okay. Uh, let me tell you a story. There was this guy, I've told you the story many times, with this guy at Costa Mesa. I love this story. guy at Costa Mesa, he's driving around one Christmas and he sees a homeless man. And God puts it on his heart to give that homeless man a blanket. He says, you know what, that man could use a blanket. So he buys him a blanket at the store and gives it to him. And then he starts buying a few blankets, uh, you know, every time he goes to the store. And I don't know how many blankets they passed out that Christmas. And then they started thinking more about that and it became a burden. And at one point they were, they were in Costa Mesa doing this in big ministry where hundreds of people were passing out thousands of blankets to the homeless and sharing Christ at, around, at Christmas time. It was uh, the, the blanket ministry. And uh, it was fantastic. So a lot of times people come and they say, oh, I want to do this. I say, oh, that sounds great. Are you already doing anything like that? No. I just think it'd be cool to do that. So God's not using you at all to do that. No one's coming to you to, to get that 
ministry or you're not being used in that way at all. You just think that you'd like to, you know, do. yeah. What are you doing? How are you being used? Well, I'm doing this or, oh, may, how about we develop this? No, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. This is, I want to do something I'm not doing that God hasn't called me to do that I'm not gifted to do that nobody wants me to do. What's wrong with that? God hasn't called you to do it. Nobody wants you to do it. And you're not ready for it. So, but you are doing this. And so I think a lot of times we just need to be, we just need to be that way. Uh, you know, hey, are you already doing it? Because uh, a lot of times, not always, I mean, there's unique cases, but a lot of times what God wants you to do, guess what? You're already doing it. You may not be doing it well because you don't know you're supposed to be doing it because you're focusing on doing something else. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we're always looking at that kind of a thing, and, and uh, we, we're doing it for, for God's glory and for your good. Then there's the whole concept of flattery. Amazing who and what a person will fall, fall for when they're being flattered. When people tell you how great you are, it only shows how little they know you. Serious, I, and I'm dead serious about that. The more they think you're a great person the more they don't know who you really are. It should horrify you. <laughs> Paul the Apostle, towards the end of his ministry, said, I am the chief of sinners. Not at the beginning. He, said, he didn't say, I was once the chief of sinners, but now I'm almost sinlessly perfect. I'm going to found a church that's based on sinless perfection. No, he said, the more I get in touch with Christ, the more I see the work that needs to happen in me. And so when people flatter you, it shouldn't... It, I know how it feels. So everybody loves to be flattered, but you should really honestly think, you don't know me. If you only knew some of the, some of the things I still struggle with, some of the dark thoughts, some of the sins that, that beset me, just the attitudes that I have, you couldn't say that. And so you're looking at a person and thinking you must not have any discernment whatsoever. Now, there's a difference between encouragement and flattery, but often we flatter when we mean to encourage. Encouragement, to me, is it pressing a person forward in his Christian walk, encouraging that man or that woman to go on with the Lord, to endure suffering and hardship and, and to fight the good fight and to run the race with patience and all that. Uh, sometimes there can be a fine line between that and flattery, but... Um, a lot of times I think we're just way over the line. And so don't, don't flatter people and don't fall uh, for flattery. Now God says, I say the word and I perform it. Our Father is the one who says what He is going to do and then does it exactly as He has said. The Bible is complete with fulfilled prophecies, verifiable, undeniable prophecies that have actually come to pass. Factor in two, the Apostle Peter's comment that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It's ridiculous to ever suggest God who is outside of time constraints is delaying. His long-suffering waits does not equal a delay. The fact that God in His long-suffering is waiting doesn't mean He is delayed. And so Ezekiel now encounters a second proverbial argument in the next couple of verses. In verse 26, Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. It's going to happen, but I won't be around to see it, so I don't need to worry about it. People still feel this way about Bible prophecy. 
They lump it together with the Mayans and Nostradamus and conclude that it doesn't directly affect their daily living because it's just some kind of crazy spiritual flow uh, in the universe that some people tap into. But after all, the world's been going on for a long time. Oh, they thought, you know, Napoleon was the Antichrist and they thought Hitler was the Antichrist. And, you know, this it's, it's just sensationalism, just religious sensationalism. Again, I would suggest that the Bible stands apart in its 100% accuracy. Many centuries-old prophecies are converging in our day, or at least you see the world trending exactly as the Bible predicted. And that's not to say that most Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in his first coming. The odds are almost incalculable that one man would do that. And yet scholars even today, I was listening to a program on the History Channel the other day, one guy was talking about how, how Mary read you know, some of the prophecies of Micah and engineered that trip down to Bethlehem so that she could have first claim that her son was really the Messiah. Okay, how about the other 332 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? It's, it's, it's impossible. Uh, and so, you know, the Bible, 100% accurate with fulfilled prophecies. Verse 28, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God. In a way, you don't want God to say this. They're saying, oh, you know, He's delayed. Nothing's going to happen. God says, Okay, I'm going to do it. I, but what He's going to do is judgment. And, and so it, it's not... It's not a good thing. Instead of thinking in terms of a delay, perhaps postponement would be better. Delay suggests there's a problem. When, when there's a delay, I mean, you think, oh, what happened? I'm, I've been delayed. You're, the boy sat on the tarmac for several hours trying to get out of country and back to the United States. There was a delay. There's a problem. That's different than something being postponed. When they say, hey, here's what's going on. We're postponing your flight. Go back and get a good night's rest. Delay suggests the problem. Postponement is a decision to wait. God's long-suffering is a decision to wait. If you're not a believer, it's a decision to wait for you. And so, you want God to do something? Get saved. That's what He's about. That that is the work of God right now. If you're a believer, God's long-suffering waits for non-believers all around you. I mean, so it's the same kind of a concept. This, this is... This is Peter's teaching in first in second Peter. God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so when we think God is delayed, he's really postponing the inevitable because there are people that he wants to see in heaven. We can hasten his coming by keeping ourselves busy in the Lord's work. Amen. Amen. All right. It is time for uh, communion. As Gino said, we like to explain what we're doing, uh, how we approach communion in terms of our, our fellowship. Um, I was a young Christian at Calvary Chapel of Redlands, and uh, Don McClure is the pastor there, and we went to a communion service one night, uh, and they had the table set up, and he just invited believers to come forward and get their own elements. And I thought that was really uh, special, because there was, and then there was a time of worship, and everybody just kind of 
uh, partook at their same pace. And, you know, sometimes not, no one's critical. No one's ever been critical of it. But, you know, people say, well, that's, you know, that's not the way they did it in the Bible. Well, we don't have a long enough, you know, table that's two feet off the ground with pillows. You know, I mean, so I mean, if you want to do it the way they did in the Bible, yeah, no, no church is doing that, you know. Uh, and so I thought, well, this is cool, you know, because and then we can just make it a time of worship and and uh, all. And, and so we've been doing that for many, many years. And it's always a blessing. And so we're going to ask you to just come up in an orderly fashion, get your elements, go back to your seat. And then either between you and the Lord or you and the person next to you or your family or a small group, however you want to do it, uh, spend some time in prayer. And when you're ready, as we continue to worship, partake of the bread, which represents Christ's body, uh, and then the cup, which represents his blood, that which was given for us that we might have eternal life. Jesus came as a man, he was God in human flesh, that he might die to pay the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. Uh, We couldn't die, and we deserve to die, but... Uh, we couldn't even die for ourselves and uh, achieve salvation because we're sinners uh, by nature and sinners by birth. We have sin imputed to us. So God had to come as a man to identify with us, but as God in perfection to die uh, and satisfy the penalty uh, and the punishment for sin. Uh, and then he rose from the dead. And that's why Paul says when he t- taught about communion, Paul said, we look for his coming. And we uh, uh, believe that he's coming again. And so all of that uh, in our time of communion. So uh, I'm going to open in prayer, get my elements, and then just come on up in an orderly way, get your elements, and then we'll uh, just pray our way out of the evening. Now, Father, we do thank you so much for your love and your grace. We appreciate what you put your prophet Ezekiel through on our behalf. First, on the behalf of your people, Lord, in the 6th century, but also on our behalf, Lord, as we see the faithfulness of a man of God and the faithfulness of the Word of God as we glean insight from that, Lord, so that we would be about the business of God in these last days. And I pray that we would be greatly encouraged, Lord, about your, your coming. I almost said your soon coming, Lord, but it's really your imminent coming at any moment. Uh, and, uh, Lord, we uh, pray that you would fill us with your Spirit so that we could minister in ways that are uh, gracious and loving and kind, so that your long-suffering, while it waits, Lord, uh, would have the effect of bringing many into the kingdom of God. As we share in this meal tonight, Lord, as believers, I pray that we would remember what you've done, what you are doing, and the fact that you are coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.